Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Doors of Portland. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. On this episode, we're honored to welcome Norman Turrell. He is the president of the League of Women Voters Advocacy Fund, one of the chief petitions of people, not politicians, and chair of the campaign committee. It's a lot of hats. Yes. So, Norman, welcome to, guy. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. And Thank the you. reason we have you on the podcast is to talk about the redistricting measure that you are the chief petitioner for, right? Yes. So, uh, I think let's start out just kind of giving the listeners a bit of a background on redistricting and... Correct me if I'm screwing any of this up. So basically when every... We will screw a lot of things <laughs> up. That's the MO for this podcast. <laughs> yes. So beginning um, every 10 years, there's a census. After the census, the state legislature then gets an opportunity to redraw district lines, both in congressional districts and the state legislative districts. Correct. And currently that process takes place the legislature does it and they push it to, is it the secretary of state or the governor for? If they fail, then it fails over to the secretary of state. Okay. Right. So if they Which fail, is- the secretary of state does it. So what you get a lot of times is if one party controls the legislature and the secretary of state, you can have lines drawn in such a way that they are not fair exactly. Well, it can be gerrymandered. Right. In such a way as to favor the people that we're doing the line drawing. So this is a natural tendency for people to uh, protect their own interests, of course, except that every legislator has a conflict of interest in the process. And so the tendency is to favor either themselves or their party or maybe use the process for other purposes like punishing or rewarding some member of the legislature in the process. And if that gets too extreme, we call it gerrymandering. Right. Right. So the example that I like to pick out, and Oregon is actually not as bad as some other states, but the fact that we have three out of five congressional districts that take a piece of the Portland metro area, I feel like is sort of one of those things to try and keep all three of those districts blue. Yeah, I think you're begging the question there. Really? I I think Portland is, you could put it up there in probably the top five most gerrymandered states in the country. Maryland Mm. is real bad. Pennsylvania is real bad. North Carolina is real bad. I would argue that, yeah, Oregon's is pretty gnarly. So that's, I I was going to ask you, Norman, if you thought you were looking to work on this petition for the sake of preventing gerrymandering going forward, or if you think it's already pretty gerrymandered, you obviously know where I stand on the latter issue. (laughs) Well, the, the League of Women Voters uh, has a somewhat different approach to these issues. Uh, we're a good government group, and we're now 100 years old, having grown out of the women's suffrage movement. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you can come to our March celebration down okay. in Salem. Hmm. The League uh, has its way of uh, using its members as a source of issues to work on. 
and this is a totally grassroots organization. The members decide what the issues they want to get into, and if it's a strong enough feeling, they will propose a study, and the study is then adopted by our state convention, and it might be a year or two long study where we study the particular issue that the members are interested in, and out of that comes a report, and the report then goes back to the members, and the members then discuss the report in a, a process we call consensus. Out of the consensus becomes a position that the League can then use for advocacy. Can I ask what the timeline was like on this particular issue? When was this, you know, when did somebody come forward and say, hey, we think these lines are drawn unfairly. We want to make sure that the politicians don't get the chance to do this again after the 2020 census. The National League has actually had a position for decades on redistricting, but the Oregon League last studied it in 2006 or seven. And the state league is allowed to have a different opinion or at least a more expansive position on the subject, and that's what we did. And out of that study uh, came this position, and that's what we're acting on now in proposing these initiatives. I won't go into d detail about what the position is, but it certainly is detailed enough that we can propose an independent commission as a solution to the process. It's a recognition that what the legislature does now is not working. It has not worked, actually, for about a 100 years. <laughs> the League, uh, as a good government group, uh, recognizes this is a process issue. Process issue is like a double-edged sword, and it cut both ways and uh, often does. It, at different times, the Democrats have been in, in charge, and at other times, the Republicans have been in charge. We think the process has not worked very well, and the voters have lost in the process. I would agree, but I'm also a Republican. So my question is, this is a pretty democratic state. Why should Democrats get on board with this? The Democratic Party itself has supported indirectly the proposal in that its last platform passed in 2018 had a plank that said that redistricting should be done by an independent entity. Very recently, the Democratic Party of Multnomah County has uh a plank that it adopted that uh, is more details and it calls for an independent commission to do the process. It doesn't have enough detail maybe to uh, get into the particulars of the issue, but uh, I think there's a lot of support in the whole political spectrum, in fact, for reforming the process mm -hmm. and making it more accountable to the voters instead of to the politicians. So that's actually a... Some an argument I've heard against a independent commission. the The argument goes that we we elect our representatives. Our representatives then have the choice to draw these lines, and if they draw them in such a way that's not we don't like, we can vote them out of office. Whereas with an independent commission, they're not really elected, and therefore the voters don't have as much of a a way to hold them accountable. Yeah, so accountability is an issue, uh, and the voters tend to hold their politicians accountable for things that they're most interested in. And right now, that's probably more like climate change or taxes or something else, but uh, something that happens every 10 years, like redistricting, is not in that list, uh, or it's very far down the list, and so it's almost impossible to hold uh, the legislature accountable for what it has done in redistricting or, or hasn't done. I'd be curious just because, uh, like you mentioned earlier, there are numerous groups across the political spectrum, numerous politicians across the political spectrum 
who have come to support the measure that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to kind of put together such a, a ragtag bunch of misfits that are all rowing in the same boat for this one and you know likely only cause? Everybody uh, recognizes the importance of this process for the voters. Quite a number of people, uh, organizations that have now joined the coalition. Besides the League of Women Voters, there's Common Cause of Oregon, uh, the Farm Bureau of Oregon, the Oregon Taxpayers Association, the Independent Party of Oregon, the Progressive Party of Oregon, even the uh, NAACP of Eugene and, and uh, Springfield. There's some others that have joined too, but they escape my memory at the moment. A bunch of individuals. And if you want to uh, see the whole list, you can go to our website, which is peoplenotpoliticiansoregon.org. Shameless plug, listeners, yes. go visit the website. <laughs> or maybe it's .com. But uh, <laughs> any case, that's also where you can add your own two cents in endorsing this or even giving us some money. It's going to be a very expensive campaign. We think maybe like $5 million, and so we'll need every uh, dollar we can get. Who's on the other side? Who is it that is opposing this? Well, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I think you can understand that the people who benefit from the current uh, process sure. will be opposing it. And those are public officials and those who want to retain the power that they currently have over the process. And ultimately, they can re-gerrymander if they want to. Makes sense. This process is going to be even more important because because of the census uh, estimates. Oregon will probably get a sixth congressional district, in which case every congressional district in the state will have to change. Mm-hmm. They'll all have to shrink and there will be another one someplace. It's only speculation, though, as to wh- sure. where that uh, sixth district will be. Uh, do you have an opinion? I was going to ask. Oh, I don't have any particular opinion. Uh, I think it's inevitable that uh, the all the districts will shrink, and that probably around Medford, I think it will be the new district, or someplace mm-hmm. in the Willamette Valley. Okay. Because the other districts will kind of squeeze in order to okay. uh, away from the um, second congressional district now crosses the mountains in the lower cascades uh, mm-hmm. around um, Klamath Falls. Falls and includes Medford and we'll probably not include Medford in the future. Yeah, my parents live in Grants Pass and they're in CD2, which I mm-hmm. yeah always thought was east of the cascades, but yeah, it cuts over. Uh, about midway <laughs> down in Southern Oregon. Tell them to enjoy it now. It might not yeah, be CD2 right. for long. That's right. CD4 is not bad. Well, they, <laughs> the population is in the Willamette Valley, and so mm-hmm. that's inevitably where a lot of those people are going to be coming from. Right, right, right. What does a win look like for you? I mean, say the petition gets passed, a majority of Oregonians vote to support it. What does a fair outcome when the lines are drawn look like? Is it a certain amount of Republicans who get elected? Is it a certain amount of party affiliation in each district, regardless of what the outcomes of the election are? Well, fair to me is a process that ultimately the voters win in the process. So with the current process, the tendency is to create safe districts where the voters have almost no chance of changing their representation. Something like 95 or 98% of incumbents get reelected just because of the gerrymandering that has previously occurred and the safe districts that were uh, created in that process. So the voters will win if the, the districts that come out of this are 
more towards their interests instead of the interests of the public officials. And if you can draw HD 36 so that it just encapsulates this condo, <laughs> and James is the only person to vote and he can vote for himself and win. That's also a win for Oregon, right? Well, one it's of the win, criteria win, is that James. <laughs> one of the criteria is that each district has to be of equal population with the others. And so it's probably not possible to well, confine I- the district <laughs> to one building. Um, so, not to get too much into the nuts and bolts of the petition, but I'm curious what the criteria will be. So let's, let's, to next point, let's say that this passes and now we have an independent commission who's redrawing district lines. What will be their guidelines for drawing districts? It's actually this, the current guidelines that are in state statute and some federal requirements on top of that. So there's actually two or three ranks of, uh, requirements. The highest is the federal requirements that are set by Congress and the United States Supreme Court. Quite a while ago, they decided that every district had to have equal population. That's the one person, one vote decision of the 1960s. On top of that, Congress passed uh, the Civil Rights Act and it mandated that uh, districts have to be drawn in such a way as to not dilute minority representation, and these are the so-called majority-minority districts that should be allowed uh, in any districting as a consideration, at least. Below that is uh, some state requirements that every district has to be contiguous. Currently, they have to have one member of Congress and one legislator in each district, uh, single-member districts, and they have to follow wherever possible, uh, geographic boundaries like, like, and political boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, like counties and cities. Big rivers, the yeah. highways. Something. Yeah. And then the, below that is a, uh, two criteria that we think are very important for consideration and, and for a potential commission. It would be, uh, communities of interest and competitive districts. Voters lose when the Districts are gerrymandered into safe districts, but they win better if the districts are more competitive. Uh, and that way they can hold their public officials accountable for whatever they've done for or against them. Right. But those are the set of criteria. Okay. So just the, we're basically saying that there's no teeth right now. The legislators are given those parameters, but if they choose to ignore those parameters, there's really not a whole lot. The yeah. only way of holding them accountable is either at the voting booth or appeal to the Oregon Supreme Court. Right. And the Oregon Supreme Court looks at it very legalistically as to what they're allowed to do under the state constitution, and that's the end of it, usually. Right. Can but, I ask, I feel like we're going a little bit out of order here. So, like, yeah. the step two is what is a fair outcome. Step three is the question that I'm going to ask right now. Art, do you see any other states that are experiencing a similar situation as us that are have very unfair district lines that have either gone through this process in the past, tried to petition to to get a nonpartisan committee to redraw the lines, or are looking to do that right now in 2020? Yes, actually, this is very popular with the voters when they do get the chance to vote on it. In the last election in 2018, uh, four states adopted an independent commission process. Any good ones? Uh, it was uh, Michigan, nice. Colorado, 
Mi- Missouri, uh, of all people. places, and Utah. <laughs> and were, Utah, all right. With the four. We're going to get hate mail from Missouri on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. St. Louis is great. Kansas City is great. Yeah. Well, nothing against Missouri, but uh, it seems somewhat surprising that they would be reformist-minded mm. down there. And so I think if we can get this on the ballot for Oregon voters to vote on it, I think we have a very good chance of actually adopting it. Uh, have you seen any polling? Have you seen any, you know, if this were to be the case, what it would actually look like and what the odds are of this passing are? Yes. We've done polling. Okay. And it looks very favorable. I won't go into any detail. Fair enough. But uh, I think we're on the right track. Okay. I guess step one, then, of, so, of our very non-sequential interview. <laughs> we can go back and edit this later if we want to. We can just, nobody's ever going to know. Uh, joke's on you, listeners. This is what we do every episode. <laughs> um, but what, what, what does it look like right now? Like, what are the steps that need to be taken? What is the work that needs to be done between now and, I'm guessing, the election in 2020? It's headed for the 2020 general election ballot in November, uh, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. Uh, we're currently in the ballot title process. We've uh, submitted the petitions, and I'll talk about why there are three of them in a moment. Uh, to the Secretary of State, uh, we then filed over 2,000 signatures to qualify them for the ballot title process. We've just gotten the preliminary ballot titles back and made comments on those, as have our opponents, and we're now going to be waiting for the Attorney General's office to write a certified ballot title, and it seems likely that it will be then appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court uh, for their opinions on the ballot titles. That's a long process, and... By the way, the League of Women Voters supported creating that long process years ago because mm-hmm. we thought it would be more fair. But it looks like we'll be hitting the street probably in April uh, for petitioning. And so what's the, what's the deadline for getting all this stuff done to get it on the November ballot? We have to have the, all the signatures, uh, 150,000 valid signatures by early July. Okay. Is that shameless plug? Where can listeners go if they are so inclined to support the fair drawing of ballots? Can they go to your website and yes, okay. And Pe- what's the website? PeopleNotPoliticiansOregon.com. There we go, listeners. Got you got <laughs> those two homework things you got now. So moving backwards in our <laughs> chron- chronology, I guess step um, point five. I guess what are we on now? <laughs> I'm curious. So, so Norman, you are the. Uh, I think you're the first male president of the League of Women Voters Advocacy Fund. Is that right? Yes. I'm a, a past president of the League of Women Voters of Oregon. Okay. Yeah. And, and you the first male to hold that. First male to hold that position. I was previous to that a member of the national board of the League of Women Voters of the United States, and I was first male to be in that position. Interesting. How did you get plugged in with the League of Women Voters and decide that this is the... Fo- I get people. this question all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> well, the, the question really comes from the name of the organization, uh, but obviously men are allowed to be members and, in fact, have been invited to be members since the 1970s. And I, that's when I joined, actually, some 40 or more years ago. 
and I've been more or less active ever since. It's something that interests me. Uh, partisan politics is not of interest to me so much because it tends to be about personalities instead of issues, and I really would talk rather talk about the issues. I'm more wonky than many uh, people in my situation. Yeah, I'd say, especially in today's political climate, it's very much about and personalities. The, <laughs> you know, furthermore, the One League is a grassroots organization <laughs> mm-hmm. where other organizations tend to be based in Washington, D.C. or something top-down, or maybe they're... AstroTurf, I think, do, is the do, term Nancy Pelosi used it, once. Yeah, that's, that's another term for it, that uh, they're driven by paid political consultants rather than, than normal citizens. Are there any other issues you guys are working on right now uh, that you feel are, are of, of note? Yeah, campaign finance reform. Hmm. Um, we, with the support of a lot of other people, back to the passage of SJR 18 in the last legislative session, and that will be on the ballot in November. And what would that? That will enable uh, campaign contribution limits and other forms of uh, campaign finance reform. We... Uh, don't think it's going to work out very well because the legislature doesn't want to pass a companion bill yet to actually set the limits. It mm. can't agree on them. And the people who now have the advantage in the campaign finance process uh, tend to want to do exactly as, as they've done all the time and don't want to agree to uh, any sort of limitations. Plus all the fifty and hundred thousand dollar checks that James has been getting are just going to be off the table. <laughs> Interesting. That's good. Yeah, and well, we're a multi-issue organization. Uh, there's many other issues that we get into. Um, yeah, some of them are very detailed, uh, like you know, what do we do about the voters' pamphlet is a good one. Anything to do with voting, we are interested in. Uh, we get into social policy issues sometimes. Uh, climate change is a big thing for us and our members. Mm-hmm. There's um, natural resource issues that we get into, uh, especially water and uh, air pollution, um, and so on. I mean, we have scores of positions that we now can act on in our advocacy. Interesting. All good things. Listeners, take note. So what else? I see we touched on redistricting about how... uh, how the process goes. I'd be curious to know if there, what are, when somebody first came to you and says, hey, I think the lines in Oregon are drawn unfairly, what were some of the districts, either the state Senate, state house, or congressional districts, that somebody came up and showed you and you were just like, oh my God, this guy's absolutely right. This is grossly not the way it should be. Well, I'm not going to answer that question directly anyway, <laughs> because it will get into some of the personalities uh, involved in the, drawing the districts. And Fair. this is, we don't want to make this about the politicians and their personalities or criticizing anyone in particular, but we want to change the process. Mm-hmm. And the process is what's important here. So any district that uh, has been carved out in such a way that it's a safe district for one party or another is the ones that I would say are bad. Hmm. And, and that's a decent amount of the ones in Oregon. Yeah, especially in the Willamette Valley. Uh, you know, there's some parts of the state, eastern Oregon, that's going to be Republican no matter what you do. Red, yeah. And there's parts of uh, Portland that are going to be Democrats no matter what you do. Uh, but there might be ways of 
uh, doing the rest of the state that can or advantageous to the Democrats voters until James runs. I'll give yeah. I'll give my opinion on this, and this is not Norman's opinion, but there are several districts on the periphery of the Portland metro area that are eighty percent Republican, but then pick out a part of the Portland metro district to turn the state the the district blue. I volunteered for Lori Travis Dreamer last time, last uh, election cycle, and she's in Happy Valley, and the majority of her district is in Happy Valley, but has a little teeny bit of East Portland, and that was a red district for a long time until it got the boundary got moved to include that portion of Portland, and then it, it was consistently a blue district after that. So again, that's James's opinion, also a Republican, so... Maybe I'm a little more, a little well, more little sal- salty there. about uh, some of those, but um, not it's, not putting not. This is not Norman speaking. <laughs> so <laughs> another part of our motivation is the fact that the legislature has really failed uh, repeatedly mm-hmm. over the last hundred years. The uh, City Club of Portland actually made a study uh, of their own that uh, went into this, and it's their determination that it has failed every time except twice. Hmm. And once was in 1981, and even that was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ordered the Secretary of State to adjust the boundaries for that. The last time was in 2011, Hmm. when the legislature actually, for almost the first time, passed a redistricting bill that nobody appealed hmm. but that was the weird yes the but there was yeah. reasons for that <laughs> and the situation at that time was that the republicans and the democrats were evenly split in the house yeah. and the senate uh because it's more nonpartisan or bipartisan they wanted to appoint equal members to the redistricting committee and so it was equal numbers of republicans and democrats on the redistricting committee and so they did manage to pass a bill and i think the republicans were very well motivated at the time because they didn't want it to fail over to the secretary of state who at the time was kate brown Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that the Secretary of State is a partisan position, and they're as likely as other politicians to want to gerrymander the state if they can or can get away with it. Kate uh, Brown is a partisan? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> Again, that's not Norman talking. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not criticizing Kate Brown, but I'm, I'm sure. describing right. the special circumstances exactly. in that 2011 legislature. Uh, and we don't think those conditions are going to happen again very soon. Yeah. It just points out again that uh, you need to reform the process and uh, get that out of the legislature. The legislature in the process uh, actually partially gerrymandered the state. It would be what we call a partial bipartisan gerrymander where the two parties trade safe districts. Mm-hmm. And their Ballotpedia actually made a study of that districting uh, hmm. outcome, and they judged that three or four districts in the state were actually less competitive than they were in the previous redistricting. So this is why I say it's a partial bipartisan gerrymander. Sure. And I there are tools now, computer programs and what, whatnot, that help help to gerrymander now. So it's not just people drawing lines on a map. You can actually look at individual households and their registrations, and you can 
draw these boundaries very to a nat's eyebrow. Yes, <laughs> yes, to a nat's eyebrow. Uh, to make sure that your your demographics are how you want them to be, whether it's safe or you want it to be a competitive district, or you want to give something away or or not give something away. Using those computer programs, they could move individual houses from one district to another. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually curious to ask, do you believe that the rise in the technological capabilities of what some of the different simulations, what some of the different lines, all that can be drawn in a much more fair way that we just maybe didn't have the computing power to do 10 or 20 years ago, do you feel that that gives more of an appetite now to have, hopefully across all of the states, more fair lines and you get fewer states like Oregon and Maryland on the left and North Carolina and Pennsylvania on the right where the population is something close to 50-50, maybe 60-40 one way or the other, but the state's congressional delegation, the state's state house is 80% occupied by one party. Right, and the computer capabilities nowadays are so powerful they can do what I was saying before. Uh, back in the 70s, they were doing this all on paper. And in the 80s, they just began to use computers, but they weren't as uh, sophisticated then about it. And we know for a fact that in the last districting in 2011, that both sides had voluminous data uh, and registration information about where the voters are and used that uh, as much as they could, even though legally they're not supposed to be looking at that data. Right. Yeah, or legally they're not about supposed to use it as a as one of their criteria. That's yeah. right. Right, right. Well, it's funny is so I I dug into some of this data um, certainly after the 2018 election, and it's really interesting how much data is available even to just random people. Like when you register to vote, I don't think people realize that your your data now becomes public. I think you can. I think you pay the secretary most of, state. of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, not your, not how you voted, but your registration, your address, your phone number, your name, your gender is all in the state database. And I think you can pay the Secretary of State $500 and they will send you a file with all of it. That's right. And I got my hands on that from the Republicans and I uh, was able to... I think there's certain parts of it that are prohibited from being released, like your signatures. Oh, sure. Um, and any other... Uh, personal identifying information that uh, is sensitive. Yeah. And you can actually, as a voter, request that nothing be released. Oh, really? Yes. There's, there's at least for certain kinds of people, I think law enforcement, right. this is available and, and victims of crime or whatever. I do remember there being some like the exceptions to this rule. Yeah, undisclosed people, but. It's actually really interesting because I took data analytics software and you can plug in all the addresses and you can color the Republicans red and the Democrats blue and you can get a map of everybody. And this is, yeah, you don't have to be someone special. It's, this is public on the Secretary of State website. Well, there's now a software available on the web that you can do your own redistricting. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and play the game yourself. Um sort of follow along as the uh, state powers that be actually do the districting themselves and Interesting. make your own proposals to those committees if you want to. Hmm. I made a, uh, made a joke to a friend of mine. The Democrats released their, um, their redistricting plan and basically it was a, a picture of Oregon with basically like a single point at Portland and 
like every district radiating out from the, from Portland, <laughs> that, so that everyone every piece gets a, a portion of the metro area. Well, this gets into the gerrymandering right. techniques. Right. <laughs> uh, one is what is called cracking, which is about what you did, just described, mm-hmm. uh, where you take a party and you divide them up as much as possible into different districts where they don't have a majority mm. uh, and thus diminish the amount of districts that they win. The other technique is uh, packing, mm-hmm. where you pack those uh, partisans into as few districts as possible and that way make more districts uh, safe for the opposition. Yeah. So, And that's been done both ways in different states. Uh, Maryland is a good example. I think the Democrats gerrymandered the states there. Very successfully. <laughs> yeah, and, and they've been sued over it. And then in North Carolina is one on the opposite side, and Texas is another one. Yeah, they, sorry, sorry, America. <laughs> uh, Texas redid their congressional districts in the middle of uh, a 10 year period. Um, You're talking about in 2003? Yeah, and. Yeah changed a district uh, a state that is not too far balanced uh into one that was very favorable to the republicans quite favorable yeah. i think republicans still had a super majority in the texas house mm-hmm. which is over 100 seats of 150 possible and that was i mean beto o'rourke lost his race by like a half a point <laughs> yeah. two points something like that so like you say uh, uh, at least a state that has the potential to be kind of even keeled, but yeah. and the more the more geographically dispersed your people are, or not just geographically dispersed, but the more um, if you have pockets of red and pockets of blue, you're there's much more ripe for gerrymandering than if you have a whole bunch of purple. It's much harder to to redistrict that way. So one of the minor provisions of our proposal is to prohibit uh, midterm. Uh, redistricting hmm. can only be done every 10 years under our proposal. Right now it can be done any time the legislature decides it can be done. Oh, interesting. So have there been any mid-between censuses in, in Oregon? Oregon? Yeah. Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. Hmm. Uh, the process was actually quite different uh, before the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was better called reapportionment where districts were allocated to counties hmm. rather than new boundaries uh, assigned. And so the legislature did that reapportionment every 10 years. And in fact, the state constitution still calls it reapportionment. Hmm. But the more proper term now is redistricting. Right. But that would probably wouldn't work as far as the one person, one vote. Each one, each district needs to be. That's right. right. It was in the '60s when the one-person, one-vote decision was made by the United States Supreme Court that that ended. So, Norman, one other question about the redistricting process. You mentioned that there's a commission that would then redraw the district lines. How how do we pick that commission, or how many people are on it, and how are they divided up partisan-wise? Our proposal is for a 12-member commission. Okay. And it's chosen through a somewhat elaborate process that ensures that the commissioners have no conflicts of interest in the process. And so the process starts with people declaring that they want to apply for membership on the commission. 
when they did this in California, they got uh, 32,000 applications, wow. <laughs> uh, 8,000 of which followed through with a lengthy questionnaire. And so we don't think there will be any shortage of people applying. Yeah. And those uh, applications then go to a panel of three administrative law judges that choose the applicants that they think are most suited uh, into three groups, uh, the largest political party, the second largest political party, and then everybody else. And we ask that they have those pools be 50 of the most qualified people in the, each of those groups. And then the Secretary of State is asked to randomly choose two out of each of those pools of 50 people, uh, forming the first six, and those six then are asked to choose the next six in order to balance out the commission in, in different ways. Hmm. And that is the 12 commissioners. Uh, can I ask, who are the three administrative law selectors? They are uh, also asked, well, they're chosen by the chief administrative law judge, but they're also divided into the three groups, uh, largest political party, second sure. largest political party, and then everybody else. Okay. Um, and their role is really to just examine those and arrange them into pools. Uh, they don't have a lot of discretion in the process. Okay. There was one proposal I saw regarding redistricting that would have had the commission <laughs> decided by counties. <laughs> That's the Kevin like, Mannix proposal. No Is that it? Yeah. I was like, there's no way. No one would go for that. Like, it's just... Republicans would go for that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd end up with 10 of 12 being Republicans. Yeah. yeah. There's Anyway. There's that no way that, that uh, initiative petition has now been withdrawn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Luckily. Like, great idea. Terrible execution. Why would even think that people would vote for that? Anyway. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, it seems a little complicated to your method, but I think that's probably, it needs to be sufficiently complicated so it's not easily gamed, I guess. Well, part of the process that I left out is that there's some screening criteria that uh, commissioners are not allowed to be politicians, they're not allowed to be candidates or public officials, they're not allowed to be uh, party officials or uh, campaign consultants or employees or staff of any of those groups or even family of those groups. Hmm. I was waiting for you to cross off podcasters. I was like, I'm still in the hunt. But I guess I'm technically... I'm a so I'm sorry, PCP, but uh, you as a candidate wouldn't be yeah, allowed to be sure. a commissioner. No, James. Sure. No picking your own lines there, well, buddy. Nick, uh, Nick's a PCP. He's yeah, a I think still. I'm also disqualified. Yeah. So it's the commission is designed not to be re representative, but to balance the political interests of the state. And... Later, when they get to voting on particular maps, they are required to vote at least a majority for any map or other major decision with at least one person from each of the three groups mm. in, in that majority. So there might be a majority of seven, uh, but it would have to be at least one from the largest political party and one from the second largest political party and, and then one, one from the from others. Yeah, that's interesting. 
All right. Well, uh, we're getting toward the end of the podcast, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand. We like to ask our guests who their favorite Republican is, but because of your position, you're not allowed to, to pick sides on issues. So who is a person that you look up to that uh, you think our listeners would benefit from? A public office folder? Any, well, any, any leader. Yeah. Whatever well, you can talk about within your... Well, uh, years ago, I was actually in the Peace Corps okay. in Somalia. And so one of my heroes is uh, John F. Kennedy, who was founder of the Peace Corps, and then his appointee, uh, Sergeant Shriver, who headed the Peace Corps initially. So those are two people that I admire. Okay. Got two for the price of one on that one. I like it. I got to have you back, Norman. (laughs) I have two sisters. (laughs) I have two sisters that were adopted from Lesotho in South Africa. Oh, yeah? And uh, the orphanage they were at is a Peace Corps orphanage, and it was through the Peace Corps worker that um, they got in contact with my parents to to get them adopted over to the U.S. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. there's my Peace Corps story. There's my Peace Corps story. Look at that. (laughs) All right. Norman, thank you so much for coming out to do the podcast with us. It's uh, been my pleasure. Yeah, it's been great meeting you. Listeners, we will uh, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site, at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.